confirm that the reading is taken from Matthew chapter 17, reading from verses 1 to 13, and is found on page 984. The Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Here ends the reading. Anthony, so much. thank you so much for reading that passage from Matthew's Gospel for us this morning. Um, The Gospels are given to us to help us learn more about Jesus, to understand more about Jesus. But let's ask God to help us now that we'll truly understand uh, the message of this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have these four accounts of the life and ministry of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you that they're there to help us to understand to understand what you did through Jesus and what you're doing for us. Help us to understand these words well this morning. Amen. Four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they tell us a great deal about Jesus. And one of the things they tell us over and over again is that Jesus made an impact on people. People sat up and noticed when Jesus was around. He said remarkable things. He did remarkable things. For instance, after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us that the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Even temple guards sent to arrest Jesus came back empty-handed saying, no one ever spoke the way this man does. And as for his actions, he healed the sick. He restored sight to the blind. He calmed the sea. He even raised people back to life. Remarkable words, remarkable actions. But you know, one of the things that we don't actually know about Jesus is whether he was remarkable to look at. 
I mean, it's quite astonishing. Uh, when you think about, you know, many biographies or works of fiction, one of the things the, the author is anxious to do is to give us a physical description of what an individual actually looks like. You know, you're told that they're, they're tall or they're short, uh, they're slight or they're well-built. You, you get this physical description. Now, when you go through the Gospels, there's none of that. I mean, Jesus is probably uh, an individual who has been painted perhaps more than any other individual, and not one single of those artists had the foggiest idea what Jesus actually looked like. They were working only from their imagination. They didn't have uh, the opportunity to paint from life or even from a description. The truth, I guess, is that um, Jesus probably looked pretty much like other Jewish men of his time. That shouldn't surprise us because Jesus was genuinely human. But in the passage that Anthony has read for us uh, today, we have an exception. It's an event where the focus is on what Jesus looked like. An event when Jesus' appearance was by any standards remarkable. It's found in Matthew's Gospel as well as in Luke and Mark's Gospel. It happened about a week after Peter, speaking for all the disciples, had declared that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Seems to have taken place in a remote place. It was witnessed by just three of the disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John. Uh, And all three Gospels call what happened a transfiguration. Verse 2, you remember, tells us, there Jesus was transfigured uh, before them. Now, all we really know about this is that Jesus' appearance was, well, I guess the right word is radiantly transformed. He was recognizable, so presumably his physical features didn't change, but he looked very different from what he normally looked like. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Then we have two equally remarkable events. Two important figures from the Old Testament turn up, and then there is a voice, a voice from, well, from up there, from heaven, from a cloud, speaking about Jesus. And I guess all of us would really like to know just a little bit more about how all these things happened. Where did Moses and Elijah come from? You know, how did this voice happen? How was Jesus' appearance changed? And unfortunately, the Bible doesn't really tell us anything very much about that. The Bible is much more interested in what these events might mean and what they might signify. It's often light on detail, but high on significance. So what is the significance of these three uh, remarkable events that were witnessed by those three disciples? What do they tell us about Jesus? What do they tell us about prophets? And what do they have to say to us? What might they be saying about us this morning? Let's start with Jesus. The first thing that these events give us is a glimpse of Jesus' glory. You know, whenever people use the word glorious, they're not thinking about dull or dowdy, are they? No, they're thinking bright, they're thinking vivid, they're thinking overwhelming, they're thinking almost blinding. I don't know if you've ever been to the the Tower of London and uh, queued forever and paid an outrageous amount of money to see the crown jewels. It's something that everybody should do once. Whether you need to do it twice, well, I'll leave that to your judgment. But one of the things about those is that they're bright, aren't they? You know, all that regalia that's used at important state occasions, it's bright. It's, 
It's overwhelming. It, it's there to impress. And this idea of, of brightness, of light, is an image that's often linked with the idea of God's presence and activity as well. Heaven is bright. Angels are bright. God's presence is often bright. And that's what Jesus looked like. He no longer looks like his contemporaries. He looks glorious. Now, this has to tell us at the very, very, very least uh, that Jesus was more than just a human teacher. Uh, what we're talking about here is something that's clearly not about, doesn't have the stuff of human experience about this. But you know, I believe that the disciples saw more than an affirmation that Jesus was, was more than a, a great human teacher. I believe they saw a vision of God, of Jesus's divine nature. An aspect of Jesus that was being hidden for the time being, but would be restored in the future. They had a vision of the future. After the resurrection, Luke's gospel tells of Jesus meeting two of his disciples and saying this, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And I believe that those three disciples had a glimpse of that glory that was going to be restored to Jesus in the future. But there's more. The second thing that these events gives us is a reminder of Jesus' continuity with what God had done in the past. You remember that in verse 3, Jesus is joined by two figures from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, who speak with him. Now, Matthew doesn't expand on that conversation, but Luke's gospel adds the detail that they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem a reference to his death and everything that would follow on from that, including his return to heaven that we read about right at the beginning of, Acts, of the Acts of the Apostles. Now, Moses and Elijah, they weren't anybody. They weren't two characters picked out of the Old Testament at random. Uh, they were people who had been called by God to play key roles at key times in, God's hist- in the history of, of God's people of Israel. Moses was the person through whom God had given the people of Israel the law that guided Israel's life up until the time of Jesus. Elijah had led the people of God back to obedience and back to following God and his law after perhaps one of the worst times when the people of Israel had turned their back on God and turned their back on following God's instruction and God's guidance. They represented the two ways in which God had related to Israel in the past, through the law and through prophecy. And now they're speaking with Jesus and demonstrating that Jesus and everything that would happen to Jesus in Jerusalem in the future was all part of the same divine plan that they'd played a part in earlier. Continuity with what God had done in the past But as well as that, these events give us a confirmation of Jesus' unique relationship with God the Father. Take a moment to think about verse 5. While he was still speaking, that's Jesus, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, before we think about those words, let's just take a moment to think about about the cloud. 
Often in the Bible, at significant points, God's presence is associated with a cloud. Uh, For instance, in 1 Kings chapter 8, it's the story of the opening of the temple in Jerusalem. You remember that Solomon took years and years and years to construct this temple, a place where God's people could come and worship God in Jerusalem. And in 1 Kings 8, you read about the opening of the temple and the point when the Ark of the Covenant, that was a symbol and a focal point of God's relationship with his people, was brought into the temple and put in its place. And after this, 1 Kings 8 tells us that this is what happens next. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled that place. In the book of Exodus, Moses went up into a cloud to receive the law from God. When Jesus returned to heaven after his resurrection, he was taken up into a cloud. When Jesus returns again, it will be with the clouds. Of course, without the voice from the cloud, you could just say it was just a cloud. But the combination of the voice and the cloud, and did you notice that it's a bright cloud, gives it a whole new significance. The disciples had seen a glimpse of Jesus' glory. Were they now also seeing a glimpse of God the Father's glory as well? As well as hearing God's words, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. You may recall that that sentence is virtually identical to a similar voice from heaven at the time when Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan that we read about in Matthew chapter 3. The only difference is the addition of those last three words, listen to him. And it's uh, a point that reminds us that the conversation that had taken place between Moses, Elijah and Jesus hadn't exactly been a meeting of equals. Moses and Elijah had been servants of God, and while Jesus was also serving God's purposes, he was more than a prophet. He was far more than that. He was God's son. He was working in harmony with God's will, and God the Father was well pleased with him. A glimpse of God's glory, a reminder of God's continuity, of Jesus' continuity, sorry. A confirmation of Jesus' unique relationship with the Father. It's interesting to see how the three disciples actually reacted to all this. They see the transfiguration, they see this glimpse of Jesus' glory. They see Elijah and they see Moses, and you know what? They're impressed. So impressed that Peter suggests building three shelters, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Why? Well, perhaps just because he wanted to make the moment last as long as possible. But the thing is, they see this miraculous events, and they're astonished, and they're impressed. But after they see the cloud, and after they see the voice from heaven, look at verse 6, what does it tell you? They were terrified. It's almost as if they finally realize just what they're dealing with. They finally realize just whose presence they're actually in. That they were having this glimpse of not just Jesus' glory, but of the glory of God the Father himself. 
that they were hearing the very words of Jesus. As the events of Easter unfolded, they understood more and more. Writing about this event sometime later, Peter wrote these words in his second letter. He said this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love, with whom, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. They had seen the real Jesus. They had seen the full Jesus. They had seen not just his human nature, but a glimpse of his divine nature. They'd heard an affirmation that what he was doing, including the bits like the idea of his death that they found hard to grasp or accept, were part of God's plan and purpose. Just six days days earlier, the disciples had expressed their belief that Jesus was the Messiah. But they'd also heard the disturbing news that Jesus would suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and that he would be killed. And six days later, the disciples have this glimpse of Jesus' glorious future. They have this assurance that no matter how disturbing Jesus' announcement might be, God was with Jesus, and that whatever happened would be part of God's plan and purpose and intention. And you know, perhaps there are times when you and I find life disturbing. Perhaps you find what's happening in your own life or the life of your family difficult and disturbing. Perhaps you find what's happening in the world in general difficult and disturbing. And there are times when we need to remind ourselves and recall incidents like this. We need to recall this view of Jesus, of his glory, of his continuity with all that God has done in history. To remember that he is God's beloved son with whom God the Father is well pleased. Um, You'll have read, I'm sure, about the death of Billy Graham earlier this week. Um, Obviously, there's been a great deal printed. There's been a great deal written about him. But I was particularly struck by one quotation that was attributed to him in one of the obituaries he wrote. He wrote, said this, I've read the last page of the Bible. It's all going to come out well in the end. And that's perhaps what these incidents were saying to the disciples. It's all going to come out well in the end. Let's move on. Let's just take some time to think about the prophets, because these events also tell us something about them. In this passage, we not only have a reference to Moses and Elijah, but we also have a slightly hard-to-understand, perhaps, conversation about John the Baptist at its end. Prophets were one of the ways in which God had spoken to his people down through the ages. We mentioned Elijah was one of just many prophets used by God to call the people of Israel away from the worship of idols and back to the worship of the true God. But now that Jesus is with us, where do they fit into the picture? And the answer is simple. They point to Jesus, they affirm Jesus' ministry, 
and they retreat into the background. There's a symbolism in the way these events play out. You remember Peter's offer to put up three shelters, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. It's immediately followed by the voice from the cloud. And as we said, identical words to those used at Jesus' baptism, but with one addition. Listen to him, listen to Jesus. And afterwards, in verse 7, when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Moses and Elijah disappear. They just fade out of the picture. But Jesus remains. They are with Jesus, conversing with him on the same page as Jesus. But they don't stay. Now, Matthew are not saying that Moses and Elijah were irrelevant or invalid or not authentic uh, or anything like that. Rather, he's teaching that the prophets had played a part in God's relationship with men and women. But that relationship was moving on to its next and final phase that revolved around Jesus in a unique and in a special way. Now, I don't suppose there are many people today who would claim to be the equivalent of an Old Testament prophet. But there are many people who, religious leaders and teachers who arise, who, who do seem to make a special impact. They attract a following. Uh, people take a great deal of interest in, in what they say. Uh, and of course, many times they're extremely helpful. But one question we always need to ask ourselves is, how can we judge if they're genuine? Well, here's perhaps one test. Do they point to Jesus or point to themselves? Do they affirm Jesus' ministry or want to change and add to it? And do they retreat into the background or do they want to be in the foreground? This is underlined in the conversation the disciples have with Jesus about Elijah. Jewish religious teachers believed that before the Messiah, God's rescuer, would come to deliver God's people, as it puts it in verse 10, Elijah must come first. Now, there was no great mystery as to why they taught that. They taught it because they'd read it in the last few verses of the last book in the Bible, in the book of Malachi, in chapter 4, and verses 5 and 6. Uh, and Jesus was explaining this to the disciples. Uh, and what he's teaching here, and he also teaches in Matthew 11, is that this prophecy had been fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. Not in the sense that John the Baptist was literally Elijah brought back from the dead. Uh, John the Baptist's own statement in John's Gospel rules that out. But in the sense that John the Baptist had fulfilled the role of Elijah. Like Elijah, he had called the nation to repentance and back to God. Like Elijah, he had spoken truth to the powerful and suffered for it. And he had also said of Jesus, and you read this in John's Gospel, chapter 3 and verse 30, he must become greater, that's Jesus, I must become less. But did you notice that Jesus also told the disciples that John the Baptist's life and death also pointed to Jesus in a special way? In a special way, it pointed to Jesus because his life his death was a foreshadowing of what was going to happen to Jesus. In verse 12, he said that like John the Baptist, Jesus would be rejected and die. Like Moses and Elijah and all the other prophets, John played a part in God's plan, calling men and women to repentance 
and pointing to Jesus. And then he'd given way to Jesus. But what about us? Before we finish, there's, there's perhaps a word to say, partly about the disciples, but also about us. If you look back to the start of chapter 16, there's an, a statement there that raises an intriguing question. Right at the beginning, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. And if you read on, you'll discover that Jesus gives that request a fairly dusty answer. He had no intention of playing their game. Uh, The Pharisees and Sadducees had already witnessed all sorts of signs. And, well, frankly, what difference would another one make? And yet here, at the beginning of chapter 17, what do we have? We have a sign from heaven. Just the sort of thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had been asking for. So here's the question. Why was Jesus willing to provide a, provide a sign from heaven to the disciples, but not the Pharisees and the Sadducees? I believe the answer lies in what had happened just before. Matthew, Mark, and Luke date the transfiguration quite precisely, about six days after Peter's confession of faith at Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is quite unusual in the Gospels. It's very unusual for you to get that time chronology stated quite so explicitly. About a week after the events of Caesarea Philippi. What does that suggest? Well, I believe it suggests that we're being invited to make a connection between Peter's statement, declaration of faith, as well as Jesus' predictions about his death and resurrection and the transfiguration. And I believe that this suggests that the purpose of the transfiguration was not to create faith, was not to provide some spectacular spectacle when everybody said, gosh, we better believe. It wasn't there to create faith. It was there to strengthen faith. In the second half of chapter 16, two important things had happened. The disciples had come to a point of believing that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Their faith in Jesus was real. But as Jesus had begun to reveal more and more about what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem, well, they were struggling with it. They were struggling very hard to get this idea that Jesus, yes, they believed he was the Messiah, they believed he was the Son of God, but they found it difficult to understand how all these terrible things could possibly happen to the Jesus, how they could possibly happen to the Messiah, how they could possibly happen to the Son of God. There was a real faith and a real struggle. And this series of miraculous events were provided to strengthen the faith that they had. And perhaps if you're a believer, maybe you can think back to times when you've had similar experiences. Yes, you've believed. Yes, you've been confident and certain of your faith. But all the same, you've been struggling. You find things difficult. And you found that your faith is, is under attack. And it's difficult. And perhaps you've had that experience when God has done something special for you to strengthen and to build up that faith. Certainly, it seems to me that if you're going through a struggle, 
it's a perfectly legitimate thing to ask God to give you. The disciples were struggling, and he gave him that sign to strengthen their faith. By contrast, the Pharisees and Sadducees, as a group, there were individual exceptions, don't seem to have had any faith in Jesus at all. They seem to have seen Jesus as a threat for the good of the nation and perhaps their own status and position. Uh, they, they didn't believe, they couldn't believe, they struggled to believe. The things that the disciples had come to believe and understand, it just didn't work for them. And maybe that's you. Maybe, for whatever reason, you find it hard or difficult or impossible to believe in Jesus. You know, the good news is that there is help available. Again, I want to take you back to chapter 16. Um, When Peter made that declaration of faith in chapter 16, Jesus said some interesting words. He said, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by Father in heaven. Faith is not something that we have to work up on, work up in our side, inside ourselves on its own. It's a quality that God develops in us. No matter how difficult we may find it to come to a point of belief and trust, God can work on our presuppositions, God can work on our objections and help us to believe if we're willing to let Him do this. After the story of the transfiguration, Matthew goes on to record an incident when Jesus heals a boy. It's what we're going to be coming to next in Matthew's Gospel, I guess. Matthew only gives us a summary of this story. Mark fills up a lot of, fills out a lot of the details, and he includes these words of the boy's father. It's chapter 9 of Mark and verse 24. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Now, perhaps for all of us there are times when we kind of echo those words. But you know, perhaps if you're somebody who finds it difficult, perhaps you think it's impossible to believe, to believe that all the things that the Gospels say about Jesus are true, then maybe this is a prayer for you. If you find it hard to believe, difficult to believe, impossible to believe, ask God to help you. Ask God to reveal it to you. Ask God to help you to see the truth that the disciples had discovered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you you speak to people you enable them to discover the truth of what we find revealed in the scriptures. Heavenly Father, thank you that you enabled the disciples to believe. Thank you that you strengthened their faith when they found it difficult. And Heavenly Father, we pray that for each all of each one of us, wherever we are in our experience of you, that you might give us the ability to believe in you. Amen.